podcast listeners, I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today is Sunday, the 10th of January, 2021. Joining me via Zoom from Vienna, Austria, is Professor Rudiger Frank to discuss German unification and its relevance for Korea, amongst other things. First, I'd like to encourage all our listeners to check out NK News, your specialist source for trusted information on North Korea. Get behind the headlines at nknews.org. You will find some very interesting articles there. First, uh, for even deeper analysis and cutting-edge data on the DPRK, check out NK Pro, the comprehensive platform for professionals monitoring the Korean Peninsula. Contact us at membership at nknews.org for a free trial of NK Pro. To introduce my guest today fully would take a good half an hour. So, uh, in brief, Dr. Rudiger Frank is Professor of East Asian Economy and Society and Head of the Department of East Asian Studies at the University of Vienna. He was born in Leipzig in the former East Germany, lived in the then Soviet Union from 1974 to 78, where his father worked as a nuclear scientist. He served in the East German Navy from 1987 to 1990, studied Korean studies, economics and international relations at Humboldt University from 1990 to 1996, during which time he spent a semester at Kim Il-sung University in 1991 and 92. Dr. Frank obtained his PhD in economics in 2001 from Mercator University, Duisburg. That's the basics. Thank you very much, Professor Dr. Frank, for coming on the show. Hello, Jacko, and hello, listeners uh, of the NK News podcast. Okay, before we get into German unification, I want to introduce our listeners to a book that you edited and published way back in 2011 called Exploring North Korean Arts. Uh, I like to call it the yellow book because it's bright yellow. Sadly, this book is very hard to get a hold of and little known, but it is one of the best books on North Korean arts, broadly speaking, with 13 chapters from different authors on all kinds of topics from mosaic murals to postage stamps to North Korean picture books to statues in Africa. Uh, in short, it's a great book and it deserves a wider audience. It's beautifully laid out with photographs and tables. It's very readable. Don't you think it deserves a reprint from a larger publisher? Yes, of course, like many other books do. Um, but that's the thing. Uh, you need to find a publisher. You have to go through the pains of doing this. But uh, yeah, maybe you're right, Jacko. Maybe we should approach this as one of the many projects uh, ahead of us. Excellent. All right. Yeah, I, I uh, do recommend people, if you can find a copy of it uh, on eBay or used on Amazon, snatch it up now. It's, it's well worth the read. I have uh, heavily underlined uh, and marked my book. If you ever think of writing an, an updated version or a volume two, I'd perhaps like to contribute a chapter on comic books. Actually, on that topic, was East Germany also a big producer of artistic output? Uh, yes, and actually there is now a big market for um, either former East German artists or artists from former East Germany. And uh, art books actually have been produced a lot, I think, uh, since we had very low book prices due to some socialist pricing policies. They were yeah. usually sold below cost. Uh, that was actually one of the few things that... As East Germans, we could give our West German relatives as gifts, um, mostly books of all types, actually large books with photos in them. But also we had those mini, mini books, which were obviously difficult to make. Um, so, yeah, East Germany was a book country and Leipzig, of course, having the uh, traditional book fair has been traditionally a city of book production. My, my mother worked in an uh, art in an art book uh, producer company, the Seemann Verlag. Which forms of arts were given prominence or importance uh, in East Germany? Was it mainly painting? Um, well, I think it was uh, all kinds of arts, from the uh, from paintings to sculpture to literature. And uh, I don't know whether you want to hear socialist realism now coming from my mouth. Yes, of course. Uh, I mean, art was a political thing. Um, it was a bit less political, I'd say, as it is in North Korea. I mean, in North Korea, it's I think it's absolute totalitarianism, uh, this whole idea of, you know, the seed theory by Kim Jong-il, etc. In East Germany, it was somewhere in the middle because, I mean, you did have an, a, a tradition of relatively progressive art before 1945. So um, there was a, a very vibrant artist scene in East Germany that, um, well, we thought it was below the radar after unification. We figured that, of course, every third or fourth or fifth person in those circles had actually been a Stasi agent, but uh, yeah, you could have those meetings amongst artists, and my family was part of that. 
Um, was there a, a rejection of abstract art or art for art's sake as there is in North Korea? Well, yes, that was the official line, of course. And um, the uh, leaders very often were not very educated people. So their understanding of art was, well, let's say not a very intellectual one. Um, but uh, even that changed over time. So, um, yeah, I, I would say it really depends on where you look at what time you talk about. Is it the 1950s or is it the 1980s? I think it was a mix of both, but the official art, of course, was um, really no law pour l'art, but really had to serve a purpose, show the strength of socialism and the struggle and all the rest of it. Okay, well, now uh, let's talk about East Germany and German unification vis-a-vis -vis, uh, North Korea. You were fortunate or unfortunate enough to have lived in East Germany, the Soviet Union, and North Korea for a while. So you've experienced three different systems uh, of state socialism. Um, as systems, how did they compare to live in? Well, the, the thing is, first, I think it's necessary to say that when I experienced that, it was really like uh, one data point. Uh, I mean, I didn't really feel like I live in a system. I lived my life and my life was really different from the lives of the other 17 million East Germans and not to mention all those people living in the Soviet Union. So I think we should be careful with that. Of course, after unification and now being a scholar, I did spend time to think about uh, all those experiences in a more systematic way. And I supplemented this with uh, readings and uh, all, all that. Maybe I should start by saying that it was my life. And this is, I think, sometimes very difficult for people like us to understand. If you look at North Korea, we, we look at it through the lens of our lives and we think, oh, how, how unbearable must it be? And in hindsight, it certainly was. But, you know, being born into such uh, systems, there are rules. System usually means a set of rules and uh, institutions uh, and organizations to in enforce them. And this is just the environment you're born with. You know, we are all born with limitations. We are all born in systems uh, that have facets that we don't like. And, you know, there are individual ways of dealing with this. And I think from an abstract, abstract point of view, um, that's the interesting thing about living under such system is it's not very different from living in our system. The difference is in the details, like what are the restrictions? What are the institutions that are there to enforce? What are the consequences of, for example, breaking the rules? Which rules are there and so on? But in principle, it's pretty much the same thing. Yeah, I want to come back to the rule breaking later on. Uh, so we're going to be talking a lot about unification. Now, being a career specialist by training, but also a political economist and having witnessed German unification as an insider, and of course, also thinking about the topic of Korean unification for the last few decades, you're well placed to uh, give us some insight. So I'd like to start off by talking about um, that time that you went to Kim Il-sung University uh, in Pyongyang for a semester. By the time you arrived there, East and West Germany had already united into one country. Am I correct in that? Uh, yes. Even though you came from the former East, were you seen by North Korean professors and fellow students with some suspicion because you've now come from a brandly, brand new reunified country? Well, I had no fellow North Korean students, but we did have North Korean professors. And uh, the f funny detail is that due to purely technical reasons, um, I could still travel with my former East German passport um, ah. because uh, it was simply, I think, in technical terms, too complicated to convert 16 or 17 million East German passports into West German passports. So they remained valid for, I think, the period was five years after unification. So my passport on the outside still said uh, East Germany. And um, I uh, always made sure to convince the North Koreans that I'm actually from uh, Dongbu, Togil. So, but uh, yeah, I think the perception was indeed um, that although technically we are now citizens of unified Germany dash West Germany, we were regarded as East Germans. And actually, we were a group of six students who went to North Korea in uh, October 91. And uh, there were some fellow students back in Berlin uh, who came technically, physically from West Germany. And they were not allowed to go because of their West German origin. So that did play a role. I, I mean, I, obviously, you cannot just uh, knock on the door of Kim Il-sung University and say, hi, I want to study here. So there was a uh, an exchange agreement between Humboldt University and Kim Il-sung University. Obviously, that agreement was concluded before unification. Now, uh, unification in Germany happened uh, in a legal sense. Well, let's not make it so complicated. All uh, agreements that East Germany had concluded remained valid. 
and uh, therefore this exchange agreement also hadn't been cancelled. Uh, so technically it was still up. But for the North Koreans, it meant it was an agreement with East Germany, and that's why they insisted that students going to North Korea under that agreement must be from former East Germany, although legally that would make no sense anymore because we were all now in one country. Right. Uh, did you end up having, did you and your five uh, fellow students from East Germany have conversations about German unification with your Korean professors? Uh, yes, we did. Um, and, um, well, we discovered that some of them, at least they knew that uni unification had happened. Um, the problem was, and I think it still is, um, the uh, level of freedom that you have in a communication, especially if it happens in a public or semi-public setting, um, you could sense perhaps a certain curiosity, but um, it was quite suppressed. Um, and that is that, that was one of the things that made studying there so complicated. You never really knew who you were talking to. Were you talking to the actual person or were you talking to the person who was playing a role? Coming from East Germany, knowing that you sometimes had to play those different roles, on one hand, there was a big understanding on my side for that. But then on the other hand, I was just about to discover all the stuff that had been done to us, you know, in, in hindsight, analyzing my situation. And my frustration was actually pretty high at that time over over my own life in East Germany and what had been done to us. And then being in North Korea was like, it's not even like traveling back in time because it was such a much more extreme version of anything that I had experienced in any of those socialist systems that I had witnessed. So um, it was a complicated situation. It was really difficult to have a meaningful conversation with North Koreans at that time. Now, uh, you, I want to get back to um, the idea of uh, rule-breaking or rule-challenging. Uh, even when you were a teenager in East Germany, you got into trouble for being a little bit subversive, shall we say. Uh, could you share with our listeners the uh, the supermarket incident when you were 14? Oh, yeah, that's, um, that, that shows you that I had an early interest in uh, economics and especially in economic uh, psychology. Well, we, we did have courses on this kind of stuff at school, and that inspired me to make a little experiment uh, to simulate a shortage. So what I did with two friends, we wrote little uh, signs saying, please take only one piece or please take only one bottle. And we placed them in a supermarket at products that were always available. But bananas, oranges, sometimes they were there, sometimes they were not. So obviously people would buy them like crazy. Um, but there was other stuff like soap or something, for example, or laundry de detergent or something. We, uh, we put those signs there and then we uh, observed whether people would now buy more of that. Because please take only one would kind of imply that there is a shortage. And um, they actually did. And we were quite happy about that experiment. And then we were arrested. Arrested? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, first by the supermarket uh, personnel. And then the police also was um, called and uh, all that. And at first, I didn't really know what the big deal was. And then later, we were accused of uh, deliberately tarnishing the image of our socialist motherland by implying that there is a shortage of products. And you also got into a little bit of trouble at school when you were 17, uh, almost getting kicked out by uh, making a comparison between the East German government and the Nazi regime. Is that right? Uh, the, 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 the thing is, the East German school system was that you had like 10 years of school where everybody went. And then after... The last two years, year 11 and 12, were at a separate school that was the uh, high school. And uh, you could only go there if you were like the best or the second best student from your 10th grade uh, class. And it was really an elite institution. I mean, it was a centrally planned system, so they wouldn't really waste their resources. If you would want to go to university, you have to go to high school. So you were kind of pre-selected already. And, well, it, it was a nice intellectual atmosphere. You know, you are there with all those eggheads who are also as interested in stuff and as you know inquisitive and asking questions as as i was so i felt a little inspired you know to dig it to dig deeper and uh, we had this history class where um, we were told uh, about all the wrongs of the fascists and the nazis and one of them was that they went after their enemies uh, they went after the communists and i said well you know isn't that what what we do too we also go after our enemies isn't the difference in how you do that and uh, yeah, that obviously um, triggered this whole thing. To make a long story short, um, I was then called into our principal's office and there was a little bit like a tribunal there with some very serious looking men in suits. 
and they had a very densely written list of paper include, uh, containing all my quotes of the last one or two months. Um, so obviously someone was listening and was writing up what I what I said, and I, well, I was young and stupid. Uh, I'm I'm still kind of stupid, but not young anymore. And I was just speaking my my mind. And one of the things I had obviously said was that the people of East Germany do not support the politics of the party or something. And um, yeah, there were a number of other things. Um, well, I kind of managed to talk myself out of that because on one instance they misquoted me and I knew that this would be the end of my life. If you're kicked out of high school for political reasons, that's that's it. I mean, I would have ended up yeah, doing some manual labor. Maybe I would even be happier. But um, at that time, it didn't really look like this. And I didn't know that German unification would happen a couple of years later. And I think my school principal also didn't really like the whole thing, but he had to follow protocol because he was also part of the system. And so everyone was happy uh, to take that opportunity, I think, that I was misquoted. And so I got away with a little bit of a don't do it again and uh, read this book about fascism, which is interesting because they gave me uh, Robert Merle, um, The Tod is my Beruf or Death is my Profession which is about the uh, former um, commander of Auschwitz. And if you read it, it's actually very interesting because it shows you how the system and circumstances can, term it, can turn a man into a monster. And um, it was pretty obvious that there were parallels to East Germany too. So yeah, it's an interesting story. And this is also why I have this kind of differentiated view when it comes to North Korea, because I know that there were all those individuals in East Germany who followed the rules because they had to, but who were also thinking people and who could make your life hell unnecessarily, but who could also help you to get out of trouble. And um, the whole thing is really, it's its a complex human society. It's not just this black and white image that you sometimes see in Hollywood movies. Uh, East Germany and North Korea, it's, it's very similar. What I wanted to ask from the basis of those uh, those two anecdotes was when you were uh, in North Korea in 91 and 92 uh, or on any subsequent vis visits, did you see any signs of this kind of small-scale rebellion or subversiveness or playfulness among North Koreans or did you try to stimulate people to do such things? We met a female student. I remember that vividly. I mean, at that time, it was after only one year of studying Korean. So my Korean was really very bad. I mean, it still is, but um, it was difficult to have a meaningful conversation. But we had this uh, female North Korean student who approached us and wanted to talk to us. And I still have this one sentence in my ears in English. She said, I, I don't want to be blind. So she really wanted to know what's going on outside. That's one episode. The other one was... Um, we were walking on the street and uh, some of us were invited to, well, got into a conversation with North Koreans who were obviously curious. M most of them, they r ran away because they didn't want to be seen talking to us, but some didn't. And they were invited actually to their house for a cup of tea or whatever. And then five minutes later, agents uh, of, you know, who knocked on a door and told um, uh, the uh, Germans that uh, the hosts are now tired and want to go to sleep and that they please leave now and then we spent the rest of the time wondering what happened to those North Koreans who were kind enough to let us in. This is when we started self-censoring a lot because we realized that nothing will happen to us but by encouraging North Koreans to you know overstep the rules of their own system we might actually jeopardize their security and this is one of the dilemmas that you encounter with many people who do North Korea professionally that you are in a privileged position. I mean, except for a handful of foreigners who um, have made very bad experiences, the worst thing that can happen to you is that you're kicked out and can't ever go back to North Korea. But if you encourage people who live there, um, they actually can have much bigger trouble ahead of them. And it's our responsibility in a way. In, in East Germany, there were no concentration camps or there were no labor camps or however you like to call them. In East Germany, there, there was no death uh, sentence, at least not in the 1980s. It, it's absolutely un uncomparable. And I think it does have to do with the situation of the country. If people can die from starvation, then you can imagine that the uh, re repressive system is also less uh, lenient um, in the means that they choose. And of course, we all know from North Korean defectors and reports what can happen to you there uh, if you um, violate the rules. Uh, nothing like that would happen in East Germany. East Germany, I mean, again, um, yeah, you could be Im imprisoned. And then if you're lucky, perhaps West Germany would actually bail you out. 
by pay a certain ransom and then you would end up in West Germany or they would ruin your life by just not allowing you to work in your actual job and give you another job. But that's really, I mean, it would be cynical to even compare that to what can happen to you in North Korea. You've just reminded me of the, uh, the, the custom is the wrong word, but the practice of a Freikauf that uh, sometimes West Germany bought prisoners free to come and live in West Germany. Uh, are you surprised that that's never been tried here in Korea? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that the East German government did it, really, because thanks to West German television, which we were all, all able to watch, and it was actually legal to watch Western television in the 1980s, we knew that this Freikauf would happen. So just uh, briefly, uh, West, German would pay, uh, West Germany would pay a certain amount of money, 10,000 or 20,000 Deutschmarks, and in exchange, a political prisoner from East Germany would be sent to West Germany. Perhaps the East Germans thought it's a good idea, you know, you get rid of your troublemakers and even get money for it, but they lost the ideological battle so badly because it was so embarrassing. You know, you, you tell your own people in East Germany that you are morally superior and then you sell your own prisoners for, for Western currency. I mean, that's the most embarrassing thing that could ever happen. And that also shows you this sheer level of desperation and also of stupidity on the side of the uh, East German leadership. And I think the North Korean leadership i mean it might be desperate but they are not totally stupid and uh, they of course also wage an ideological battle against south korea and the west and um, they have of course keenly observed uh, what happened in east germany and uh, i'm pretty sure they are not going to repeat that mistake if if they do that would really be a sign that we are nearing the end really how does um, the North Korea of 2021 differ from East Germany in 1990? Well, how many hours do I have, Jaco? Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> maybe three big points. Oh, I don't even know where to start. I mean, I, I published a lot and maybe you can also uh, provide that to your listeners, some of the points here that, that, that we've got. I mean, one is um, the major ally of East Germany was itself in trouble. I mean, in a way, German unification also has to do with the fact that Gorbachev just simply um, sold off East Germany to Helmut Kohl for, I think, a few billion Deutschmarks, whereas China is certainly not interested in selling off North Korea to the Americans. The, um, the, the, the degree of knowledge about each other was a very different one. I mean, in East Germany, we had millions of East Germans, including my mom, actually, who were able to travel to West Germany to visit relatives and then came back. Every um, pensioner above the age of 60, you know, pension age uh, from East Germany could travel to West Germany freely. I mean, you had to apply for a visa, but you could do that. So my, my grandma went there twice to visit her sisters and came back. We had West German television. I grew up with West German radio. I mean, the first time I listened to East German radio and music was actually when I was 18 and when I was conscripted into the military, because in the military you were not allowed to listen to Western radio, whereas at home you could. Now, comparing that to North and South Korea, they know almost nothing about each other. There are no visits, there are no letters, there are no phone calls. I mean, um, the other big difference perhaps is the digital age. Um, at that time in 1990, East Germany, there was no internet, there were no mobile phones. Um, uh, so this level of communication, exchange of information wasn't there, whereas now it does exist. Given all the, the significant differences, what then is the significance of German unification to the situation on the Korean Peninsula? Because you have argued, somewhat controversially, that comparing the German and the Korean case of unification makes absolutely no sense. No, it doesn't. Because, again, I have a list of about 20 or 25 differences, and uh, they start with... Um, the origin of division, the presence of troops on either territory. You have no foreign troops on North Korea's territory, whereas you did have Soviet troops in East Germany and so on and so on. No, really, I, I think it's extremely dangerous um, and misleading to compare those two cases because it gives you this, um, this feeling of knowing what is going to happen in Korea, and this is simply not true. And that's why I'm such an, uh, a fighter against this idea. Although, Jaco, I must admit... I might be fighting a monster from the past. I don't think I have read much in the last years about such a comparison. This was a fashionable thing in the 1990s, where you had, I think, literally thousands of South Koreans traveling to Germany and studying, in quotation marks, the experience of German unification, and then coming home and, you know, presenting lessons and so on. 
you, of course you can learn something. I mean, my, my main populist argument, if I might say so, is that you can learn as much from East German unification as you can learn from American unification. If you unify two um, uh, countries or two parts of a country or two systems that um, were following different ideological rules and that have a different economic structure, you will, of course, always have issues that you need to deal with, including the fact that you see the uh, con Confederate flag still flying. And this has been like, what, 150 years ago or something? And uh, that, that tells you how deep some of these issues run. And if you look at uh, German unification, um, again, it's not the same thing, but you also see that one part feels disenfranchised and colonized and so on. And of course, the lesson is that you should treat those more respectfully and all the rest of it. But otherwise, really, it doesn't make any sense. Even, even I mean, my, my, the, the worst thing is really the cost of unification. That is something that as an economist really bothers me a lot, how people get away with basically talking BS because people say that uh, West Germany paid a lot of money for unification and unification was very yeah, costly. I think that's that's technically wrong. Um, I'm, I've been trying to transport that idea because I know it's a dominant narrative. And what you see, of course, is that there were those huge transfers of so and so many billion Deutschmarks or million, hundreds of millions of Deutschmarks from the federal government to East Germany. And this is where the story usually ends. But just, just imagine, Jacko, you um, observe... Two people, one person gives the other person $10. That's it. So this is basically what you observe. But then what does the other person do with those $10? Let's say this person goes to a vending machine and buys himself a coffee and a sandwich. Uh, who owns the vending machine? It's the person who gave those $10. Who owns the company that uh, refills the sandwiches and the coffee into the vending machine? The person that gave you those $10. So the money actually flows back. And this is exactly what happened in the German case. I mean, East Germans, they didn't eat the money, right? They spent it. And uh, if you receive money, it usually means that you are um, at the lower level of the uh, in income. And lower level income people, they tend to spend about 100% of their money on consumption. They don't save it. They don't invest it. They spend it. And on what did they spend it? On what did East Germans spend the money? that they received, you know, through their jobs and uh, through social welfare and so on. Well, they spend it on food, they spend it on, um, you know, rent for their apartments they lived in. Where did the food come from? It's really interesting. On the July 1st, we had this currency union between East and West Germany. So that was even before unification. All of a sudden, all the East German products disappeared from the supermarkets and there were only West German products. And it made good sense because you didn't want to spend West German currency on East German products. Um, you wanted to have like, quotation marks, the good stuff for the good money. And um, it took years until East German producers reappeared. And sometimes it's, again, just the brands that are now owned by West German companies. If you think about investment that has been made with the money, like, for example, in the East German transportation and communication network, which were the who were the companies that actually built the uh, Autobahn? between, let's say, Berlin and Leipzig. I mean, I drove along that autobahn once a week to visit my family when I was studying in Berlin. Uh, we drove down to Leipzig and you could see all the signs of Max Bögel, Heilet and Werner, Strabag, etc., all West German construction companies. There were no East German construction companies to build those roads. Then what trucks were actually going on those roads between Hamburg and Berlin? East German trucks? No, certainly not. It was West German logistics companies transporting West German goods and products to the supermarkets and stores in East Germany. The owners of all the uh, real estate, uh, they all were West German because, I mean, there was hardly any private ownership of stuff in East Germany in any way. The, the, the point is, and please don't misunderstand me, I'm not complaining about West Germany taking over East Germany. My point is that what we count as unification costs was simply... Uh, a subsidization of the West German economy by the federal German state, and that was kind of disguised as cost of unification. It was a big Keynesian measure of, you know, uh, using state money to support the West German economy. And then again, this is, I have numbers, I have, we have numbers on that. They are there very clearly. Um, I just have one uh, set of numbers here. East West transfers, uh, from, um, a number of statistics, uh, in the first four years after 1990 in the range of 500 million and then we had uh, east german imports from west germany in the range of 700 million so that doesn't doesn't just mean that all the money flew back 
but there was even more money that was flowing back into West Germany. And if you look at the GDP growth of West Germany compared to France, for example, you see that West Germany's GDP actually went up after unification, whereas that of France went down. France, which had no unification, but still was a Western European country. So um, this whole idea that unification is costly is just based on a very mediocre understanding of how an economy works. Every flow of money, there is a flow of goods and services back and vice versa. And you have to really look at the whole thing. Now, going to the Korean case, uh, what we can expect is a huge boost of demand for South Korean products of all kinds, from Samsung televisions to Hyundai construction and all the rest of it. I, I think it's not going to be very costly. The problem is that this cost argument is something that influences public opinion in South Korea regarding unification, especially among the young people who are concerned that it will um, have high economic costs and that will affect them, who are already struggling to kind of get their foot into the labor market. This is why this is not just an academic debate. It has political implications. And that's why I think it needs to be, um, well, I, I almost said rectified, but you know what I mean. Yes. When I was doing some reading on uh, German unification way back in the early 2000s, I read that uh, there was almost all the attention was focused on uh, economic issues like infrastructure and factories and jobs and things. And there wasn't enough attention on social issues like, uh, well, psychological problems and um, politics and the social unification of two countries that have lived apart for 40 years. Uh, would you agree with that? Well, yes and no, because I do believe that the uh, economic issues are at the core of everything. If you lose your job, then you will have uh, psychological issues. Then you will depend on welfare and you feel being less valuable and so on. I think it, what, what really is important is indeed to focus on those economic issues. That, that, that brings us back to the differences between the Korean and the German, the East German case. Um, doing this in a normative sense really doesn't make much sense. If you say like you must invest in the other part in order to, you know, uh, maintain or create new jobs and, and so on. This is again like central planning and we all know that central planning doesn't work. You have to have the conditions um, so that all that uh, can actually happen. And key, obviously, is that investments must take place, that companies do not break down, people do not become unemployed, and so on. Now, uh, in the German case, what we witnessed wasn't just German unification, it was also the collapse of the whole socialist system. So yeah. that um, basically all the inputs and outputs of East Germany's economy were disappearing, exactly at the same time when German unification happened, which is why I think we assign many economic effects of, unific of German unification to German unification, which are actually effects of a breakdown of a socialist system. Now, the interesting thing is that this is what, we ha what happened in North Korea in the mid-1990s. But the, the, if I might say, good thing is that this is over now. It is not going to happen again. So North Korean companies that now have foreign trade relations and well obviously down to a very low level due to COVID but that might re resuscitate I think they will survive unification I mean they still have their customers they supply their products at world market prices and so on so this is not going to be the problem a big issue that we have in the case of Korea is uh, property rights so that needs to be resolved um, and I think coming back to your question Jacko that all these social issues they are more or less a consequence of the uh, economic issues, or at least most of them. Because if you if you have a prosperous country, if you have your own companies, if you have your own brands, if you maintain your workplace and uh, get a chance to modernize it and to make it even better, that will instill a sense of pride that was lost for East Germans, where I think 90% or so of the industry either was either destroyed or taken over by West German companies. And this led to a loss of identity, especially amongst a certain generation, like the generation of my parents, I think they were the most affected. And uh, that led to all those um, social issues that you mentioned. Well, there's also, I mean, just uh, as an idea that well, one problem, I think that doesn't have a, a clear economic connection uh, was this um, concept of East Germans being told by West Germans, um, your last, the last 40 years of your life were wasted, were, were nothing, were of no value. The best thing you can do is forget about those last 40 years and become like us and move forward into a, a prosperous German future, and then everything will go well. And certainly here in South Korea, 
there's long been this concept of Dongjie uh, Songhuibok, this uh, recovery of homogeneity. That as soon as we reach unification, North Koreans will overnight become just like us, or we will want them to become just like us. Uh, and that has its own set of um, psychological and social issues that, at least to me, don't appear to be directly economically related. I, I think you're absolutely right. But um, the way, I mean, these issues, they, they will emerge. The question is, how do you deal with them? And this is where the uh, e economy comes back. I, I think it's going to be much worse, actually, in the case of Korea. One of the major differences is that uh, German, East Germany, West Germany never had a war against each other, whereas North and South Korea did. With everything that goes when it comes to a civil war, you know, uh, raping each other, torturing each other, neighbors killing um, each other and all that, all that bitterness, you know, um, that I think that's even worse than, if I may say, regular war. So it's really, really bad and it's not that long ago, right? Uh, overcoming that will be very difficult. I mean, we have a little bit of a preview if you look at the situation of North Korean defectors living in South Korea, all the issues that they have. Um, the way how they are seen and so on and so on. A absolutely right. I mean, this is going to be very dirty and in a way we can only hope that unification will happen at a point of time when people who witnessed these uh, atrocities that were committed by both sides, when they will, you know, be in heaven and just look down on us. But uh, on the other hand, we also know that things like that, they have a certain tendency to live through the generations. But then again, um, let's say you are encountered as you're a North Korean and you are encountered with this claim that all you did over the last 70 or 80 years is bullshit. Um, well, what do you do? The best way to counter that is saying, yeah, maybe, but look at this new startup that I founded and look at this product that now every South Korean also has in their pocket. And, um, you know, this is how you can counter that rather than convincing South Koreans, hey, be nice to those North Koreans and don't, you know, talk so nasty and treat them with re respect. This will never work. Uh, you can't talk people into being re respectful. You have to earn your respect and you have to have a chance to earn respect. And this goes back to the uh, economy, to culture and arts and all the rest of it. So to more substantial issues rather than telling people how to behave. That, that's never going to work. This is why socialism failed. Um, you, you, you can't convince everybody to do the right thing. Even after German unification, there, there's a certain kind of um, uh, nostalgia for that collapsed socialist system, uh, mm -hmm. which I believe is called Ostalgie in, uh, mm -hmm. in Germany. Uh, do you suffer from that yourself? Well, yes and no, although I should say, well, there are two, two thoughts I have. One thing is, I think most of the nostalgia is actually more a nostalgia for being younger because it's like 30, 35 years ago. I was 35 years younger, you know. I was, <laughs> uh, I had less fat, more hair, you know, you know what I mean. Um, so it, it's really easy to mix these things up because, of course, you connect your youth to the country you lived in. I think that's the one thing. The other, um, is uh, a fallacy that is described by, uh, Daniel Kahneman the uh, psychologist, and I think he calls it the uh, availability heuristic. So you take the easiest available explanation for a phenomenon. I think for many East Germans, the uh, situation, if, if they find themselves in a situation that they don't like, the yeah. easiest available explanation is, oh, that's because of unification. And that's very often wrong, because if you don't have a job because you are badly qualified, because you live in a in a region that is economically underdeveloped, or because you are simply a lazy person, or because your intellectual capacity is not um, as it should be in order to be a rocket science uh, scientist, which happens everywhere in in the world, right? You will not take that explanation because if you're already told, oh, that's because you're in East Germany, this is enough. This is all you need to know. And this is where you stop. And then eventually you start be believing that. And um, I think this is also a problem that we have in the actual perception of the problem uh, itself. Because we do have unemployed people in West Germany too. And uh, we do have unemployed people in other countries. We do have people who live in villages where all the young people leave and go to the big cities. This has nothing to do with unification, but it's very easily associated with it because of this uh, availability heuristic. So it, it seems almost certain then that uh, if North and South Korea ever reunite, that there'll be a kind of North-stalgia 
Well, I, I'm afraid so, yes. And as, as odd as it may seem, because uh, our propaganda tells us that life in North Korea is hell, and I'm pretty sure that in many aspects it actually is. But that's not the whole story. Home is what you're used to. And uh, this is something, since you asked me about my own feelings, uh, this is something that I really feel very strongly, is that uh, I'm basically a homeless person, or countryless person, if you like. Uh, because the country I uh, was born in is gone. So I'm like an, uh, an immigrant who will never be able to go back to the place he was born because the place is gone. I mean, not technically. Leipzig is still there, but it's not the same city, right? Everything, almost every aspect is different. Even the dialect is changing. Um, but so this, yes, in economic terms, I think North Korea might even have less reason to be nostalgic because I believe uh, after unification... Lots of industry will actually move from South Korea to North Korea, which is a phenomenon we did not have in Germany. So this will pose actually a big challenge to the South Koreans that they do not see when they look at the West German case. It's interesting you mentioned that you, you don't have uh, kind of a, a hometown. You're, the country you were raised in is, is no longer there. And yeah. it's interesting that you now live in another German-speaking country, which is not a political part of Germany, but once was. Uh, it's almost like you've you've sort of moved away from Germany to go to another country once again, uh, expressing that badly. But, you know, I, I sometimes think about, you know, how it is that Austria and Germany have in some ways a, a shared cultural history and they speak the same language, but they're not one country and they're okay to be not one country. And I wonder sometimes if uh, we could make an analogy that North and South Korea could get to a stage like Austria and Germany where they, they have a shared history, they speak a language that's the same or similar, but they don't feel this urge to reunite. Well, Jaco, I think, well, I'm, I'm getting your point, but um, I don't really think comparing Austria and Germany in that sense um, is really appropriate. Austria has been its own empire for centuries, having nothing to do with uh, Germany. I think technically it was part of Germany only during the Nazi period from 1938 to 1945. We do speak the same language, but we have never been the same country. Austria and Prussia have had a war against each other in 1866 or something. Um, so no, 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 no. Uh, they have never been one country. Absolutely uncomparable to uh, Korea. I mean, unless you want to go back to Pekche, Shilla and Koguryo, where we had uh, three separate countries on the Korean peninsula. But ever since Koryo, 918 or 36 or whatever, this has been one country. And it has only been divided in 1945. Austria and Germany, really, I mean, except for this occupation by the Austrian Hitler, actually, which is funny, um, they have never been one country. Uh, Germany was divided into smaller fiefdoms, and they've always been talking about unifying and they did so in 1871 but austria didn't really join right so uh no 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 no. this uh this comparison makes no sense i'm, I'm getting your point though about a co coexistence i think this is not going to happen though there are two reasons for that one is korean nationalism which is enormously strong so i think once uh the uh, obstacles that are right now in place for a unification of the two koreas are gone there will be a very strong movement to actually do that the other point is uh, external pressure. Korea is geopolitically not in a situation where you can have two Koreas um, existing more or less separately from each other. It's not like in Europe, you know, where you're surrounded by smaller or mid-sized countries. Um, Korean Peninsula, well, obviously everybody knows that, is surrounded by Russia, a big country, China, a big country, and Japan, compared to Korea, uh, also a big country. So I think the pressure for just combining forces in order to pursue national interest from coming from the outside is much too big for any two separate country version to be sustainable. I think it will always be just an intermediary step to a Korean unification. I'm, I'm not saying that this is going to happen. I mean, that's the other thing. Although, as you know, one of my favorite jokes is that uh, uh, as, a, as a clever North Korea specialist, you should predict North Korea's collapse at least once a year so that later you can say, you see, I pre predicted it, but yeah, especially the year 2020 is a pretty difficult one for North Korea, so you never really know. But then on the other hand, uh, I've been I've been predicting North Korea's collapse since 1992, since when I came back from North Korea. I didn't really think they would last for more than three months 
the the nice thing is that nobody will punish you for making a wrong pre prediction. People tend to forget these things very quickly. So for strategic reasons, you should pre predict it just in case. No, but uh, back to Sirius. There is, I, I do see the option that if the North Koreans get their act together, and if they actually follow a path of development that will uh, strengthen their economy, that will uh, make them more of a responsible and respected member of the international community, then they might actually achieve a status uh, where they can talk to South Korea on an equal basis. And then this mode of unification will be very different from this Hupsut-Hongil um, or unification by absorption, that is, again, as one of the fallacies of following the German example, is usually assumed as the standard model of Korean unification. But it cannot be excluded. Look, if you have a system like in North Korea that rests only on one pillar, and that one pillar is the power of the Kim family supported by the uh, Workers' Party, uh, you always have a danger. If that one pillar breaks away for whatever reason, then there's nothing else to support the system. So uh, it is, of course, always an option. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it's the only option, and I would also not predict it as being the most likely one. By the way, and on occasions like this, I used to point at Wolfgang Schäuble, who still is, uh, I think, a member of the federal German parliament, who in, in February 1989, I think he was minister of the interior at that time, anyway, of West Germany, he predicted that um, East Germany shows no sign of trouble and imminent collapse, so we, West Germany better get ready to live with them for the next decades to come and so on. And that was 10 months before the peaceful revolution in Leipzig. So in terms of predicting something, and at that time, West Germany knew so much more about East Germany than we know about North Korea today. Um, that tells you how, uh, dangerous, how dangerous and basically futile it is to make such kind of predictions. Of course, we are talking about the future, which is always speculative, but what, what I like using as an argument is um, the year 1945 is the last time we had a Korean economy that had grown, if I may say, naturally. Uh, after that, it was divided. There is an interesting book written by a German geog geographer, uh, Hermann Lautensach, who, thanks to Germany's alliance with Japan, the Axis was able to travel through all of Korea. And I think he published his book about the Korean economic geography in January 1945, so that's one of the last um, books we have on that. And that shows you very clearly that most of the industry was concentrated in the northern part of Korea, whereas the southern part was the granary and also the place where you had light industry because you had higher levels of population there, which was needed in terms of labor force. Uh, North Korea has all the minerals. North Korea has all the uh, opportunity for hydropower, which you need for industry. Um, North Korea has the proximity to China, which in 1945, of course, was from of a strategic meaning for Japan for the expansion to the East Asian mainland. Now China has a very different meaning, but it also has a strong pull factor for industry, trying to be as close as possible to this huge market. So my prediction is that we will actually see a movement of industry from South Korea back to North Korea, or going newly to North Korea. This will take a while, you know, infrastructure needs to be built, transportation is a mess, but the railway lines are there, and uh, the autobahn or highways are there, they just need to be improved. Uh, minerals are still there, China is still there. Again, it might take a while, we are not talking about a few days here, but I think we have reason to believe that something will happen in the case of Korea that never really happened in the case of Germany, that is substantial movement of major industries from South Korea to North Korea. And that has two effects. One is that we will have less economic problems in the North than we had, for example, in East Germany, because all industries there, they died. And West German industry has had no reason to actually go to East Germany. I mean, Poland is a fantastic country, but being closer to Poland is not really a strong economic pull factor if you compare it to being closer to, to China, for example. And we will have structural issues in South Korea because if like factories move from Ulsan to Chongjin, um, 
that will be pretty bad for people working in uh, Pyongyang, though, right? You might actually even see uh, m migration from South Korea to North Korea of a scale that is, of course, unthinkable if you look at the German case. Well, I can imagine uh, it would take at least five to ten years to set up that economic infrastructure and oh. get things up and running in North Korea. So the first thing that would happen after unification, wouldn't that surely be a movement of people from north to south? And maybe later, five to ten years later, there may be a move back as those factories start to come online. Well, if you think that the labor market in South Korea is able to absorb North Koreans, then maybe. If you believe that most North Korean companies will collapse after unification, then yes. But again, I don't think this is necessarily going to be uh, the case because uh, North Korean companies have already been operating now in a, let's say, semi-competitive environment for the last 20 years, uh, which means that I think I mean, not, not all of them will survive unification. That's crystal clear. But I think more of them will survive unification than was the case in East Germany, where those companies were simply absolutely not competitive at all. Is there not um, still a significant proportion of the North Korean population who technically have jobs but don't actually do anything productive? Yes and no, again, because you all know that these people now engage in sideline uh, activities and they, they are learning this 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 way of surviving in such a semi-marketized uh, environment from the Chinese. I mean, I've traveled a lot to North Korea until very recently, and uh, you basically see everywhere you see people trying to make a dollar or two. Um, you have a car wash, for example, emerging. You have all these restaurants emerging. I mean, to me, having been there in 1991, you know, there I, I don't think I've been to a restaurant a single time. Because simply there were no restaurants. I mean, yeah, you could go to the Koryo Hotel, but that doesn't count as a restaurant to me. And now, you know, in Pyongyang, every 50 meters or so, you have a shiktang there. Um, and you have uh, taxis, uh, uh, taxi companies, and you have all kinds of services uh, emerging where people with a low investment of capital are trying to make money. So the attitude is there. And I think this attitude really matters. East Germans had to learn that. First of all, you know, not waiting for the state to give them a job. And of course, you're right. I mean, the majority of North Koreans, they still have uh, state organized jobs. And right now we see a tendency of actually even the government trying to reverse course and bringing more people back under the umbrella of the state. And we have to see how all this turns out. But I would still argue that they are much better prepared for standing on their own feet than uh, East Germans. Oh, we have the uh, Donju, you know, petty capitalists in North Korea who are learning, you know, the lending business and who are looking for opportunities for investment. My, my uncle was one of these people. He actually ended up in East German prison. And uh, now he, he, he owns uh, his, his hometown because he was he was a born capitalist, but he was born in the wrong country in East Germany. And as soon as the uh, unification happened, he bought his own state-owned company, uh, expanded it, and is now one of the world's leading manufacturers of a very specialized uh, packaging product, you know. Um, and he's the biggest em employer in his hometown. The thing is, there were too few people of this type in East Germany. I think there will be more of that in North Korea. So I am slightly optimistic, actually. I have uh, one last question for you, Professor Frank. Um, the, the, the morning after this podcast comes out, uh, you receive a phone call uh, from Pyongyang, from Kim Jong-un, who says, Professor Frank, please give me some advice on uh, what I can best do um, here with the North Korean economy. And then right after you get off the phone with him, you get a phone call from the South Korean Minister of Unification, Ian Yong, saying, Professor Frank, what can we uh, Koreans take away? What lesson can we take away from German unification? I'd like to know what you would tell both of those men. I, I wonder what North Korea specialists did not dream about such a phone call, especially the first one that that you mentioned. The problem is that one of the key sentences I always tell my students is that the economy is always political. So in other words, what makes economic sense doesn't necessarily have to make political sense. And that's the problem that Kim Jong-un is facing. I think um, making his economy more efficient is very simple. The problem is, will he survive it politically? And uh, is he willing to basically sacrifice himself? And uh, I'm not quite sure about that. So if you want to give advice to Kim Jong-un, you have to consider both aspects. You have to consider how to improve the economy while maintaining the current political system, which is not necessarily what I would prefer, 
but that's the only advice he would really listen to, right? Um, and in that case, um, it would be uh, follow South Korea's example of economic development and just substitute U.S. by China. And he will not like that idea because North Korea is already too dependent on the Chinese, but I think that's so far the only option. Um, I would recommend to um, get rid of the nuclear problem one way or the other in order to allow North Korea to participate in international economic exchange because that's really the key. Um, any country of the size of North Korea cannot have economic development without foreign trade, without uh, imports of capital, without import of technology. And as long as the sanctions are in place, this is not going to happen, at least not in a, on a substantial level. And we all know that sanctions depend on the nuclear issue. So I would recommend the Kim Jong-un, first of all, to solve the nuclear problem. Solving it means solving it, like finding a solution that he finds satisfactory and that will help him to get rid of the sanctions, which is why, by the way, I was relatively enthusiastic about all those meetings between Kim and Trump, although, unfortunately, they led to nothing. For the South Koreans, exercise a bit more Juche song. <laughs> Be a bit more independent. Don't wait for the Americans to do the job for you. Which, uh, and I know I'm not being entirely fair here. Uh, I know many South Koreans who, uh, of course, work very hard to uh, improve the situation of their own country without waiting for Washington to make the right decisions. But at the end of the day, there's still a tendency towards that. And I think South Korea needs to get rid of that. De determine what's good for your own country and uh, go for it. Try to improve your own society as much as you can, because that is, of course, the biggest strength and biggest asset that you have. Try to be open-minded when it comes to North Korea. Uh, try to somehow find ways to deal with the past. But then at that point, I would already recognize that this is nonsensical, because South Korea is still trying to figure out how to deal with the uh, Park Chung-hee and uh, Chon Doo-hwan era. It would, of course, be pre preposterous to expect that they would do any better in dealing with the past when it comes to North-South relations, but at least that would be my recommendation. And then I would um, lean back in the safety of my nice house here in Vienna and uh, watch the whole thing as an external observer. But really, Jacko, I, I, I don't, frankly, I don't believe that one big idea and one master plan will really help to solve the issue. Um, I think it is a myriad of smaller decisions that are going to be made that will, at the, at the end of the day, determine what's going to happen. One, one minor thing um, that I would actually recommend to the South Koreans is get your property right problem uh, straight, which is what do you do with North Korean property after unification? Who owns what? Why am I saying this? Because if you want to have economic development, you have to have clearly defined property rights. Uh, we have this example in my own family where we owned a house in Leipzig that was taken away from my family during the socialist period. Then we wanted to have it back after unification. And it took us like, I think, 11 or 12 years. I mean, I'm talking about a single house. I mean, it was a big one, 16 apartments, four stories, etc. But for 12 years, actually, the house was standing there no one would renovate it because the old owner knew that there was this restitution thing going on. We, of course, couldn't invest because we didn't own it. So when it was given back to us, it was basically a ruin and we sold it off at a very low price. And just imagine, uh, look at the Yugyong Hotel. That's an example I usually use. This pyramid-shaped, um, iconic hotel in Pyongyang that is not really operating because it's an empty shell. This hotel has been built on land, right? Who, who owns that land? Right now, nobody cares. It's owned by the North Korean state. But what if we have unification and the reintroduction of uh, private property rights? Then you will have some South Koreans pulling out their old right or maybe f falsified documents proving that they own a plot of land. I'm pretty sure the hotel stands on three or four different plots of land. Can you imagine all the struggle going on of who owns what? And meanwhile, the hotel will crumble and fall apart. And the same will happen to every single factory in North Korea. I mean, for collectivization, it might still be possible to remember who owned what, unless, of course, it was owned by a Japanese landowner, then things really become very complicated. But without ownership rights, you will have no investment, and without investment, you will have no uh, economic growth, and without economic growth, you will have all kinds of problems. And this needs to be resolved now. Now, in Germany, we had two options, actually, in 1990. One was uh, re restitution, and the other was um, co compensation. 
and there was a big political debate. The problem is, since Germans, both sides of Germany, were so surprised by unification, we had that debate while the process was going on. Now, Korea has the big advantage of knowing that this issue is coming up, and they can find a solution now. So the South Korean government can actually decide that, look, um, after unification, we will not restitute that property, we will not give it back to the previous owners. If you have a claim, tell us, and we will pay you some money from... Uh, the taxpayers uh, coffer and that's it and all the property in North Korea will just be newly sold off by the state to private investors and this is it this is something that can happen very quickly of course I understand why the South Korean government isn't doing that now because you will solve a problem that might emerge somewhere in the future but you will create all the frustration right now which is not really good for being re-elected and that's why uh, this issue is not being touched but it's absolutely crucial and then again, there's one of the advantages of being an outsider. I can give you all kinds of clever advice and not myself having been uh, being responsible for actually uh, doing it. So that would be my recommendation to the South Korean minister. Well, thank you. That's where we're going to have to end it today. Thank you once again, Professor Dr. Rudiger Frank from the University of Wien from, uh, for joining me on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure, Jekyll. Thank you. And don't forget to our listeners, you can buy this podcast through the... Uh, hang on, that's incorrect. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast through the nknews.org website. And ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you like what you heard, visit us at nknews.org, your trusted source for updates on everything North Korea, written and produced by field specialists. Become a member today at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, go to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Arias Dare, our post-recording producer genius who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thank you. Thank you.